Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Thessalonians 3 Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, Paul, thank you very much indeed. Uh, do please keep your Bible open, and uh, you might also find it helpful, I think, if you dig out uh, this uh, sermon outline. Uh, whether you like taking notes or not, it will at least show you where we're heading in the le- next uh, wee while. And uh, welcome. It's lovely to see you all here. Um, let me add my welcome to that of Chris's uh, earlier. Now, let me pray for us as we look at the Bible together. Heavenly Father, in the light of eternity, we pray that you'd help us to know how we should live, uh, how we should pray. We pray that you, the God of grace, would help us uh, from this point on in our lives to be sure that we're building uh, a life on things that will last forever, just as we've been singing. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think this is true for, for most of us, if not all of us. Uh, the future shapes the way we live in the present. Um, so the, the prospect of exams coming up um, in the near future means that you'll sit in your room all day long uh, revising when you could be out enjoying the sunshine or playing sport or whatever your thing is. A future career um, determines which university you go to 
uh, affecting where you live and how you spend your time. Uh, the thought of retirement in the future has an impact on how I invest my money today. Now, for sure, there are some people who spend their lives looking back, living the past, perhaps regretting the past, but for most of us, for the most part, it is the future that affects how we live in the present. And that is certainly true, meant to be true for the Christian. The great future event of the return of Jesus Christ should shape how we live today. And that is what we will see here in this last chapter of uh, 2 Thessalonians. If you've been here these last weeks, you'll recall how the Christians in Thessalonica had become muddled when it came to their understanding of the future. They had received a letter purporting to be from the Apostle Paul, but it wasn't. And this letter told them that um, uh, the return of Christ had already happened. Uh, Have a look back to chapter 2 and verse 1. We've, I think, looked at this verse um, every week, uh, but it's good to get it uh, in our minds Now, chapter 2, verse 1, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. See, they'd had a spurious letter proclaiming fake news that the great future event of Jesus' return had already happened. And that false teaching had put the Thessalonians into a spin, So Paul wrote this letter to correct their thinking, to teach them the truth about the return of Christ, and we've seen that in chapters one and two, and now in chapter three, to shape their living in line with the future. Now the first thing we see here is that the future return of Christ affects the way we pray. Now that's the first point on the handout, verses one to five. There are two prayers in verses one to five. First, Paul asks the Thessalonians to pray for him in verses one and two, And then in verses three to five, Paul prays for the Thessalonians. First then, Paul's prayer request for the speedy spread of the gospel. Um, Have a look at chapter three, verse one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. Uh, Paul's prayer request is simple, that the gospel message was spread fast and be received well. Remember the big issue in the letter? Jesus is going to return. They got it wrong, but he is going to return. And when he does, it will be a catastrophic moment for unbelievers. Um, Just flick back with me to chapter 1, verse 9, to see that. We've already seen it a couple of weeks back. But when Jesus returns, uh, for unbelievers, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, do you see, understanding that future event must change the way we live in the present. If I have in me even an ounce of love for others, I must tell them of the danger they're in and of the rescue that can be theirs in Jesus Christ. On um, at least a couple of occasions, I've had complete strangers come up to me and tell me uh, what to do next. Both times we were on holiday that I can recall. On one occasion we were walking along a coastal path on a high cliff and some walkers coming the other way told me to turn around and not go any further. Just a few hundred metres up the, up the way the coastal path had crumbled into the sea below. We had three young children with us at the time and they were running ahead of us having a whale of a time. So I was really grateful for those other walkers telling me of the danger ahead and telling me to turn around. On another occasion, I was wading out to sea with the twins holding onto my hands. They weren't very old. And uh, a swimmer uh, was coming back, uh, having swum out, coming back onto the beach and told me not to go much further because there was a steep, sudden drop, a a shelf on the seabed. 
How kind of complete strangers to tell me of the danger ahead. Now look, as Christians, we have been given insight into the future and it is a terrible prospect for anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to warn them of the danger they're in and the way to be rescued from that danger through the death of Jesus Christ. The very thing that we'll be remembering next weekend at Easter. Let me encourage you, just as Chris already has, to invite your friends and neighbours and colleagues and family along to church over Easter. Invite complete strangers along. See, the big point, because of the future event of the return of Christ, Paul was relentless in spreading the gospel message. But he knew it wasn't all down to him. It was the Lord's work. And so in chapter 3, he asked the Thessalonians to pray for this spreading of the gospel. And there are three aspects to his prayer request. Firstly, the gospel, that the gospel message would run, verse 1. Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly. That spread rapidly is more literally run. And I love that sense of urgency. Jesus may return at any time. People are in grave danger until they've turned back to Jesus in repentance and faith. So pray for the message to run, to spread rapidly. Look, if you're anything like me, you always think there'll be a next time or a better time to talk about Jesus. I don't think it's that we're great procrastinators. It's um, probably partly because we've tried in the past and it's not always been well received. That was certainly how it was for the Thessalonians. They were being persecuted for being Christians. So it's understandable that we're reluctant to tell others. But Christ will return. It could be today. And the judgment to come is catastrophic. So pray for the message to run, to spread rapidly. And um, this is a prayer. I say that because I know most of us well enough to know that we are concerned that our friends and neighbours and colleagues and family hear and respond positively to the gospel, but perhaps we don't pray about it as much as we should. It's interesting. The great Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary ever, wanted people to pray for him. He didn't just think he could do it on his, on his own. This would be a great prayer for us to pray. So pray that the gospel message would run. Secondly, pray that the message would be received well. Again, verse one, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured. I love that word. It's a prayer that when people hear the gospel, they would kind of respect it and embrace it. They'd honour it. Now look at the detail at the end of verse one as well. Pray that it would be honoured just as it was with you. Um, you'll know this, many of you, we looked at 1 Thessalonians a few, uh, I think it was about a year ago, and you'll remember uh, when the Thessalonians first heard the gospel, they honoured the message, that's what he's saying here. Um, they received it as it actually is. So Paul can write, you don't need to look it up now, but in chapter 2, verse 13 of, of 1 Thessalonians, he wrote, you received the word of God, not as the words of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That's how, chapter 3, verse 1, they honoured the message. Um, just last week, somebody told me how they'd become a Christian. It was wonderful to hear. They had no Christian background, but someone uh, they knew told them the gospel, and they said to me, I knew immediately it was true. I knew it was from God. Remarkable, isn't it? Never been involved in the church, never read the Bible, but the moment they heard the gospel, they knew it was from God, and they accepted it, honoured the message. See how Paul is praying here? Not just that the message that the gospel would, would run, would get out to many people, but that it would be received. And uh, again, I think we need to pray like this, often because we think the message is going to be rejected, because that's been 
our experience. But interesting how he says, be honored just as it was with you. He says, look, you've received it. Why should it not be received that way by others? It's a great way to think, isn't it? Great way to pray. Just think about yourself. You're here. You've received the gospel message. You honor it. So pray positively that as the message is spread, it would be received with honor. Pray for the message to run, to be received. And then third, pray for the messenger to be rescued. I guess this is verse two. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not everyone has faith. Or not everyone has the faith. That is, not everyone is a Christian. Again, the Thessalonians knew all about wicked and evil men attacking messengers of the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul first took the gospel to Thessalonica, do you remember he was chased out of town by an angry mob baying for his blood? It's some precisely what we expect, having read chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Remember in chapter 2 we were told there's an enemy at work in the world, the man of lawlessness, Satan. He doesn't want people to be saved. He wants, to, he, he wants them to perish. He doesn't want people to believe the truth as he put it in chapter 2 verse 12. And so chapter 3 verse 2, we need to pray for the messengers of the gospel to be protected, to be delivered, to be rescued from evil and wicked men. Look, here's the big point. The return of Christ should change the way we pray. Out of love for people, we should want them to hear and receive the message of the gospel. So pray for the message to run, to be received with honor, and for the messengers to be rescued. But then in the light of the return of Christ, we not only pray for the gospel to go out to others, but for Christians to keep going to the end. And so in verses three to five, we see Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. The prayer comes in verse five. Look, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. It's a, it's a great prayer. It's a prayer for us to be changed at the deepest level. You see, it's a prayer about our hearts, for our hearts to be affected by God's love, uh, for us to realize how much he loves us. We're going to see this next weekend at Easter. And for that to give us love for him, and as a result, to kind of persevere to the end with Christ's perseverance till the time we're finally with him. I, um, I think of a student I was at college with. He had above his desk the words, for love's sake, keep going. I asked him about it. Um, he referred to his fiancée, who, who, who I, I knew he was engaged, uh, and I knew she was in the States. And um, he told me, again, what I knew, that uh, when she was back in this country, uh, she was an American, when she'd come back in this country, that they would get married. But there were visa issues. And he didn't know when she would be allowed to be in the country. And therefore, when they would be able to marry. He didn't know whether that would be in a month or two or in years to come. But he did know that he needed to ensure that he passed his exams to get a good job to be able to support her when she did arrive in Britain. He longed for the day when they'd be together. And that future kept him focused on his work today. For love's sake, keep going. His motivation for, for working hard. And that's verse five, isn't it? A prayer that out of love for God, because he first loved us, we love him out of love for God, we would persevere until Christ returns when we're finally with him. That should be our great longing. 
That then is the prayer in verse five that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. Uh, But uh, what about verses three and four? Well, let me uh, show you how I think it all works together. In verse two, you see Paul has asked the Thessalonians to pray for him to be delivered from wicked and evil men. And uh, so you can imagine the Thessalonian Christians thinking, crikey, if the the great apostle Paul needs prayer for protection from wicked and evil men, what hope is there for us? And so Paul writes, verse three, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Here's Paul, the great pastor, assuring them that God would strengthen and protect them. Then verse five, he prayed for them to keep going because of the love of God. But sandwiched between those two verses is verse four. Now this is how I think these verses go together and it really opens up verse four for you. Verse three, the Lord is faithful. He'll protect you from the evil one. Verse four Obey the Bible's commands. I know you are obeying them. Keep obeying the Bible's commands because that is how we are protected from the evil one. So verse three, he prays for a protect. Well, he, he, he says the Lord will protect you. Verse four, obey the Bible. That's how you will be protected. Verse five, a prayer that the Lord would keep you going to the end, that you would be kept from the evil one, in other words. And why do I say all that? Because here's the thing about verse four. Obeying the Bible's commands is protection for us in the Christian life. At the beginning of the year, I had a scam email that um, said that my account had been hacked. It, um, the email appeared uh, quite plausible because it, it sort of came from my account to me. And the hacker said in the email that they'd taken control of my uh, webcam on the computer and had filmed me using, visiting pornographic web, web, websites. And now they were demanding money of me, or they would send the evidence to everyone in my address book. I instantly showed the email to my wife, and then forwarded it to the church wardens here. And that evening, while we were eating together, I read the email to my children. They're 18 and 16, so they're able to deal with these sorts of things. First, I told the children that they, what they should do if ever someone was blackmailing them. But most importantly, I was able to say to them, because I don't watch porn, because I never visit pornographic sites, from the moment I received that email, I knew it wasn't true and I had absolutely nothing to fear. Now, do you see the point? Obeying the Bible's commands protects us from the evil one. That is a very liberating place to be. Verse three, the Lord will protect you. Verse four, Obey the Bible's commands. That's how you protect yourself. Verse five, pray the Lord will keep you going, strengthening you to the end. So then, the future return of Christ should affect the way we pray. Secondly, the future return of Christ should affect the way we work. Verses six to 15, and it's over the page on the handout. See, it seems that this, this fake news from the Thessalonians, uh, to the Thessalonians, the news that Jesus had returned already, it seems that, that as a result of that news, some Christians had stopped going to work. If this is the end of the world, if Christ has returned, what's the point of going to the office today? Fair point, isn't it? Of course, it wasn't the end of the world. Christ hadn't returned, and so Paul had to speak into that situation. Verse six, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Every brother that isn't doing the work that they should be doing. And there are three things in this section. First, Paul's 
example, verses 7 to 10. Let me read those verses. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. You see what Paul says there? He says, we worked hard when we were among you. We didn't sponge off others. We went above and beyond what was expected of us as apostles. You see, as a Christian worker, Paul could have asked to be financially supported by the church. That's the point of verse nine. But he didn't do that. He wanted to set them an example, verse nine, to be a model for them to follow. Look, it's a loving thing to be working hard so that you're not a financial burden on others, verse eight. May I commend those of you, indeed most of you here, who work hard to earn a crust. That is a godly thing to do. And it is the right thing to do until Jesus returns. Paul's example, second Paul's command, verses 11 to 13. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is good or what is right. Verse 11 is very arresting, isn't it? Some among you are not busy. They are busy bodies. I love the way that's written. I've noticed that. Maybe you have as well. People who stick their noses into other people's business usually don't have enough to get on with themselves. Because when we're busy getting on with our own work and gospel ministry, we don't have time to be poking our noses into somebody else's business, do we? So if you are a busybody here, the way to stop it is to get stuck into the work you should be doing. This is where the expression comes from, mind your own business. That is not only just keep out of my business, but be looking after the business you should be about. It's a Christian saying, mind your own business, maybe we should use it to one another a bit more often. And whether it's your daily employment or caring for the family or getting on with gospel ministry, whatever our situation, there's plenty to be getting on with. So we shouldn't have to spend our time meddling in someone else's affairs. Mind your own business. So you see, to those who'd given up paid employment, they, it seemed, were not only sort of sponging off others, sort of asking them to give them food and, you know, all... Well, they were kind of meddling in other people's business. And Paul commands them, verse 12, get a job and earn a crust. Now look, I know there are issues of unemployment and it's not always easy to just walk into a job. But that isn't what Paul's addressing here. Remember the context. This is written to people who've decided to opt out of work who've given up paid employment, who have no desire to do any work, who wouldn't dream of going down to the local job centre because, well, you know, they can make it very spiritual. Jesus has come and, you know, I'm now living this way because of the return of Jesus. But they expect other people to support them financially. It was only a lazy minority. The vast majority in Thessalonica, and the same is true here, of course, the vast majority do work hard. And um, I hope this doesn't sound patronizing. It certainly isn't meant to. To all of you who are working hard, 
Paul writes, verse 13, never tire of doing good. Don't get tired of doing a good, honest day's work. Working hard might make you tired, but don't be tired of working hard, is what he says. A good, honest day's work is a good and godly thing to do. And so let me say to you, particularly those of you who don't don't enjoy your work, you know, those of you who find the daily routine a real daily grind, let me say to you, well done. Keep going. Working to pay your way is godly. You might have the most boring job in the world, but you're doing a good thing when you're doing it. Keep going. Paul's example, Paul's command, third, Paul's discipline, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, um, there's a big principle here applied to a specific situation. When people refuse to obey the Bible, in this case by being lazy, the specific situation, refusing to work when they could, but when people disobey the Bible, there are clear guidelines on how to treat them. First, take note of them, verse 14. See, as a family, we are, as a church family, we're not just to ignore those who refuse to live the Christian life. In this Instance, not working when they should, but this is true of anybody who refuses to live the Christian life. They should be identified as such. Then verse 14, don't associate with them, not in a vindictive way, but rather to help them to realize that their deliberate and willful rejection of God's word is serious. End of verse 15, uh, 14, act so that they feel ashamed. This is tough love. Why? Jesus is going to return. Remember the big context. Uh, And because obeying God's word is the way we protect ourselves from the evil one. And because God loves us and is living, and living his way is the best way for the Christian community to live out the Christian life. So we must help those who are disobeying God's word to feel ashamed about that. Not verse 15 to regard them as the enemy, but to warn them as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is Christian discipline. Christian discipline has to be one of the hardest things I have to do. It uh, is usually misunderstood, uh, both by the person that needs to be disciplined and by others in the church family. It's always very unpleasant. And I've only had to do it once or twice since I've been here. I'm glad I don't have to do it more often than that. But why do we do it? Because it's what loving parents do with their children. We discipline them. Love is tough. And in the Christian community, we must love people enough to discipline them. Why? Because Jesus is going to return one day. We're not playing games. We're about the most important issue in life. The eternal destiny of precious men and women and boys and girls. And if people are simply not living the Christian life, we do well to discipline them, to bring them back to live as they should. Do you see, the future affects the way we live and work now. It should affect the way we pray and how we work. And so finally and briefly, Paul signs off in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. There are three great longings here. Do you see them? 
Verse 16, the longing for the Lord of peace to give peace to his people. End of verse 16, for the Lord to be present with his people. And in verse 18, for the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with his people. They're lovely, aren't they? The peace of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the grace of the Lord. I kind of love to say more about all of them, but my time has gone. So here's the thing that struck me as I've studied this this week. It is that verse 17 is sandwiched between verses 16 and 18. Now, it's obvious why he writes verse 17. The Thessalonians have received a false letter purporting to be from him, so he has to be sure that they know that this letter really is from him. This is written in my own, with my own distinguishing mark, he says. But what is striking is that Paul positions verse 17 between 16 and 18. I'd have put it right at the end. I think this is the point. It is as we stick to Paul's writings, to the apostles' teaching, to the Bible, as we stick to and live out the scriptures, then we know these three things, the peace of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, and the grace of the Lord. See, um, if we don't stick to Paul's teaching, then we will follow the false teaching, the fake news that they had received. And have you noticed how failing to live out the Bible's commands means that we are robbed of peace. Have you noticed that? When you don't live as you should, the peace goes. And if we don't stick to the Bible, we will not be living a life of grace. We'll give up on grace. And if we won't stick to the Bible, eventually we will forfeit the Lord's presence. So that's why it goes in the middle, you see, as we remain aligned with the Bible, with the Apostle Paul's teaching and all the Bible, then verse 16, the Lord of peace will himself give us peace. And verse 16, the Lord will be with us, his presence. And verse 18, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with us as well.